Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Northern Fire podcast. Today I'm going to be your host, Sean Parry, aka Sacred Not Tattoo, and I'm going to be joined by my co-worker, Brock Dillon, also known as the Badger King. Hello, you're all very welcome. Today we're going to be joined by Neil Price, who is an archaeologist at Uppsala University in Sweden. He's got a lot of interesting stuff to say about Scandinavian history, including Viking Age burials and shamanism. We've been big fans of his work, uh, both his online videos and his written work, for quite a while now, so it's pretty exciting to have him here, isn't it? Exactly. This episode is also a follow-up to a blog that me and Neil did um, through uh, Northern Fire. You can find it on the Northern Fire blogs, and it's that's concentrating specifically on Vikings and tattoos. Uh, so we're going to be also following up a come of it a couple of interesting things that have come out of that and then we're going to elaborate on some of the things just picking his brains on you know things that we think are interesting as well so without further ado here we go So, Neil, thank you so much for, for joining us on this. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Sean. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. It's great to have you. So, um, uh, yeah, obviously we did the blog on uh, the possible uh, the possibility of Vikings and tattoos, and uh, we were hoping we could just elaborate on that a little bit more. Um, so, obviously, some of those things that we talked about, obviously the most famous one, uh, I think, is probably the best to begin with is Eden Fadlan's accounts of, of the Vikings. I've been, I've been reading through this again, lots of different translations and trying to um, get into it a bit, a bit deeper. And there's a number of things that everybody's sure about. And another, a number of things that people are arguing about. Um, the problem is that the, the syntax in the Arabic is really complicated and it's not always certain what, the individual words mean so I thought you might be interested in you know we can kind of box that in into what we definitely know and then what is possible everybody agrees that the the people he's talking about are tattooed from their toenails to their neck so it's it's really totally full body tattoos um, one of the possibilities it mentions lots of them collections of them so it implies it's because it, it could just be like, you know, a few here and there. But if it's a collection, it implies that it's, it's pretty, pretty dense coverage. Um, there's a it's pretty clear what the things are depicted, uh, although it's, it's kind of a short list. But it, it's uh, it's definitely trees. Which I personally think is probably interlaced designs. Um, yeah, which you're obviously familiar with. If you if you just saw those and and you you weren't familiar with them, I think saying that they're trees would be fairly reasonable. Um, I think that's what absolutely would, what what would probably strike him. Um, maybe um, either figures or, or pictures. There's a there's a discussion about which word is meant, but probably figures. So it pretty clearly doesn't say whether they're animals or humans or gods or you know whatever other kind of being, but recognizable 
beings. So it's probably interlaced designs and these figures. Um, and then it's really, really annoying. It says, and things like that. <laughs> so, so, so there you go. Um, and uh, one of the other things that, that um, there's a bit of discussion about is the colour. Um, it's certainly dark. The word dark is definitely there. So it's something that presumably contrasts with the skin. Um, the other possibility is that it's specifically dark green. That's the colour that's mentioned. So dark green from the toenails to the neck and trees, figures and things like that. <laughs> so that's and that's that's it. I, I think that the, um, you know, we all assume and I think pretty reasonably that they are tattoos, but it, it doesn't actually say that. It says they have pictures on their skin. So they could conceivably be paint or something like henna or something along those lines. But but I, I certainly guess they're tattoos. We've never found any tattooing needles or anything like that. But I don't know enough about them as to whether maybe bone needles might not be recognised as being that. I don't know. Do you have any ideas about that? Well, uh, I'm not so clued up on tools from from the Viking Age, um, that could have been for tattooing specifically. I know a few people that think that it's possible that, um, you know, even some of those iron rods uh, that that the, uh, you know, the, the important women, um, I don't want to mm -hmm. use any specific terms, uh, <clears throat> that those possibly were used for tattooing. But obviously that depends on... Well, some of them have ends on them that there's not a chance in hell they could be used for that. And other ones, mm. some maybe. Some of them are pointed, yeah. 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 So, but that's the thing. When it comes to tattooing, you can... You know, there's, there's a variety of different tools that you could use. Obviously, bone, uh, you know. And it's... Uh, it's I wonder how much, if, if, there, if the Vikings were tattooing, how important the needles or, you know, whatever it was they were using, the chisels or possibly even just knives, how important they were. Um, yeah. There was a there was something I heard recently that that some people have been arguing about the possibility that uh, Eden van Lam is actually referencing sword, uh, the patterns that are on swords and not on people. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, um, that comes, this gets, gets very obscure, I'm sorry, Sean, but it's, it comes from a, a very old translation um, yeah. by a guy called Fran, who, um, bear in mind, I don't read Arabic, so I'm going on what Arabists are saying. Yeah. But they all seem to agree, including all the recent ones, that uh, he actually misread the manuscript. But there is one translation, his, that, that describes um, all of these designs, you know, the trees and so on, as being, as you say, on a sword. Um, so he interpreted it as describing pattern welding or, or damascening or some, some kind of inlay on the blade. Um, I don't think that's the case. I, I Really, everybody but him is into this. As It's, it's pictures on yeah. the skin. So, yeah. Well, I, uh, I assumed if you... Well, I assumed that you would have done your homework on this. <laughs> so <laughs> I was just curious as to where that came from. Oh, that, that's as far as I know, anyway, yeah. So presumably by now, there have been 
good Arabic translations uh, done by actual people that know what they're talking about then. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a particularly good one by um, a guy called Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's I've, I've worked with him quite a lot and he's um, he's very clear about the... Well, all the things I've said, the, the fingernails to... Sorry, the um, toenails to neck, the, the designs and, and so on. So he's pretty sure that they're tattoos. Cool. Yeah. 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 Even the phone line's just fantastic. I mean, just you just it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've um, just coming across his references that you that you put in your most recent book. It's a, it's an always an exciting part to get to. But um, I think that again, one of one of the things that is so striking is that he, well, he obviously has he doesn't paint them in the the nicest of lights <laughs> so maybe he's, yeah. Yeah, he's sorry maybe he's being a bit of a realist about them <laughs> yeah, yeah i think i think also he he's he's come a long way by the time he gets to the volga and uh when you read the rest of his account sort of from baghdad to the point where he meets the Rus, he he doesn't really like anybody very much. Um, <laughs> he, he he's just complaining about sort of a whole succession of cultures that are dirty and filthy and stupid and so on. So it's uh, um, yeah. I remember reading about the uh, the is it Turkic tribes that he they're 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 Muslims, but he still thinks they're barbarians and they're doing it wrong or something. <laughs> yeah, there's there's different sort of interpretations even of who it is that he's meeting. Yeah, yeah. so it's. And the, and the big yeah. question is, how does he get back? Because we don't have that <laughs> part. So, but he presumably did, otherwise he wouldn't be writing. But yeah. Hmm. Plot thickens. Uh, also, from um, other parts of the blog that we uh, that we did together, you mentioned in it um, Harold Godwinson's tattoos, and yeah. I've been reading more about that actually, and because uh, I was interested first in um, just just really trying to gather things. Obviously, this is your interest too. Gather what we know about early medieval tattoos at all, because it's it's so little for the Vikings. But um, and honestly, I can't really pin down where this reference to Harold Godwinson's tattoo comes from. I've I've kind of got most of the way there, but again, there's, um, it's it's a whole mix up of different sources describing his ex wife, who knew him by a mark on his body on, on after he was killed at Hastings, and it's on his chest, and um, it's also kind of muddied by lots of Victorian interpretations, and and some of them certainly didn't want a King of England to have tattoos. And and then some of them uh, thought that actually it was referring to some kind of almost like love bites or something. And this this didn't go down too well either. And um, so it's kind of all over the place. But there is a sort of consensus that it's something to do with um, his wife's name, which is, I just think, really interesting that somebody is is tattooing their wife's name in in the 11th century. It's it's a. it's a nice thing, but it's a timeless they, classic. <laughs> yeah, whether it, whether it you know with mum or something, you know, but whether it, whether it really <laughs> is a tattoo, I, I don't know. Um, it's certainly not a, a really. Re- it's not the same kind of source as Ibn Fadlan, which I, I think we can really trust. But uh, there's so few mentions of tattoos of any kind. It, it's 
which could you and this is maybe a, a bit of a reach but I, I think it could be because they were really common there's yeah. not that many mentions of people wearing shoes either but they they do <laughs> you know so <laughs> well that's obviously um what i've read uh even before the term tattoo was established it's really difficult to discern what people are talking about with any marks in mm. general and even even now say the last time i went for my uh you know for my jabs for you know keeping up my hygiene with uh, with my practice the nurse referred to uh my tattoos as my pictures she said i'm going to make sure that i stab around your pictures <laughs> so <laughs> cool. you know yeah even now it's not always so standardized <laughs> the yeah. illustrated man um <laughs> Yeah, so there was also the, uh, you know, um, I was talking to Matthias and he, he uh, Matthias Nordvik, and he was saying that, that there's references to to tattooing in Saxon lore as well. Ah, oh, I don't know about that. Wow. Can you? Ah. Well, he was saying, uh, I don't know the source, sadly, but he was saying that there's there's a difference between good Christian tattoos and bad pagan tattoos. So wow, yeah. So maybe um maybe I'll put you guys in touch and you can talk yeah, about yeah, that because I've heard I, you I talk know, about we'll say... to... <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool. Oh, I'll have to check this out. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Oh, I'm glad I could help. Them. Pagan tattoos and Christian tattoos. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite exciting to hear something like that coming from Matthias because it's it's like one of those things you hear about on the internet and there's never a source allied to it. And you just think like I would actually like to know where this comes from, <laughs> and it's never there. But <laughs> well, certainly in regards to King, oh no, sorry, King Alfred, um, into um, Harold uh, Godwinson, I also have read that he had England tattooed on him, mm. or possibly the Othal rune, or yes, his uh, his wife's uh, his wife's name. So you know, I don't trust anything on the internet too much, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's it could be even even when you're researching you know it's it's hard to it's hard to to trust it sometimes and there's you know it's even something that seems pretty good you just can't quite get to the source material yeah well, on that note just very quickly like i know that like a lot of uh reenactors and reenactment groups are kind of loath to accept anything that even fadlan says um and they sort of poo-poo it as just like one source. It's just one tribe, one source. Mm. It doesn't really mean anything. Uh, and I'm just wondering if you had anything to say about that um, in terms of... Because listening to your talks and reading your book, you, you're very enthusiastic about Ibn Fadlan and it's kind of infectious. Uh, and I love hearing about it. Um, but I, I'm just wondering what you would sort of say to that attitude, uh, if you don't mind elaborating. No, not at all. I... I... I can see the point because it it is a very contextualized source. He's describing a particular time, a particular place, and also people who aren't at home. Mm. You know, so if you get people who are professional travelers in any country or time, they're maybe not necessarily typical of the place they come from. Yeah. It's hard to tell. Um, I think at least some of them are from Gotland. There's a very I mean, there's, we don't need to go into this, but there's there's a very specific description of a kind of brooch which sounds like something from Gotland and that would make sense in terms of you know people from Gotland going down the Russian rivers oh, cool 
Um, I don't think there's any doubt that they are Scandinavians. There's been a lot of discussion about that over the years. But the description of the ship burial is is so close yeah. to what we excavate. And it's not like the cultures in the place where he's describing it. Yeah. So I, I really think it's it's pretty pretty solid. Pretty cut and dry. I, I in, in t- well, I, I I think it it's okay as long as you just take it for being what it is. Yeah. And in terms of only being one source, kind of so's Beowulf. <laughs> you know, absolutely literally, Beowulf is in one copy. There is no other manuscript of it at all. It nearly went up in the Cotton Library fire as well. So, and and nobody sort of says, "Oh, Beowulf is any one of it." You know, so so I think we have to be careful about that. But at the same time, it, it is important not to say this is what the Vikings, all of them, everywhere, all the time, were doing because we don't know. Yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, I, I'm very much into the variety of funeral custom. Oh, yeah. They do a lot of different things. And it's just that he has the best eyewitness description. Mm. I, I think the main problem with it, actually, is that it's so long <laughs> that we've kind of become over-familiar with it. And everybody goes to the obvious bits. And there's lots and lots of little details that we skate over. And there's also, actually, is this doesn't... I think it's not... Maybe as well known, there are different versions of Ibn Fadlan, different manuscripts, and they're not all the same. Oh, wow. So they there are different I wasn't aware sort of, that. of it's it doesn't really affect in any of the main kind of drive of what's going on, but there's one version where the the slave who is killed as part of the ceremony, the the entire funeral is actually a wedding and she's marrying the dead man. No way. Um, and there's a lot of stuff about this marriage custom. And and that's just one version, you know, so maybe it's that, maybe it's not. Yeah. Um, or there's things like uh, there's, a, there's a part when um, there's one of the Rus is making offerings to some wooden posts with faces. And that's in the main account that you know, people, people read all the time. But in the, in the one that talks about the marriage... It's actually the posts that prop up the ship when they burn it that have faces on them. Wow. So maybe it's a, it's something totally different. And the consensus at the moment, such as it is, is that the one about the marriage is it's a much later manuscript, but they think that the the thing that that author was copying is actually older than the one that we regularly use. So it's no. There's there's lots to do Damn. with it in fact. Like. Awesome. <laughs> the uh, the the translation that is is really good by James Montgomery. Um, he because uh, one of the things is is his Ibn Fadlan's book doesn't have a title. Every any title is just a modern one that people have given it. And uh, James told me that he he likes action movies, so he he's called it Mission to the Volga. <laughs> so it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a great translation. Nice. <laughs> Well, after reading parts of your book, because sadly I haven't got through the whole thing, um, I do have a million things I would like to ask you, but uh, something that that just comes to mind right now is um, um, I got to the part where you're talking about saying that, you know, Odin, Odin says that, you know, it's right to cremate the dead. But obviously there are instances where certain people are buried and I was just wondering if you could elaborate on the possibility of why that was. Um, 
the first the the um the so-called laws of odin where he sets out what you should do with dead people um that's in snorri so it's quite late and we don't know how real it is basically yeah um and there is no kind of uh how can i put it there's no there's no firm answer to that uh so i i think it's interesting that it it um tends to be overlooked by a lot of people when we do actually have a, a source which we trust in other respects so you know when we read the rest of Snorri it's there's lots of interesting things in there um even that source he does say that some people should be burned and some um some people are their ashes are just thrown in the sea when people are actually buried not being burned um yeah we you can wonder is that something that mainly happens outside Sweden or is uh because that's where it's set in the in the in the source or um is it something that Snorri's got muddled up about you know it's it's hard to to tell i i personally i think this variation in burial custom is a, just a variation in identity and we focus on something quite dramatic like burning a body or not but actually, I think that's just one variant among all the other little things as well. Do you use weapons or not? Do you put a pot by somebody's head or not? Or you know, do, what kind of clothes are they in? And, and, and so on. So I, I, I don't think there's any kind of single meaning to that. The only kind of thing I, I'm... As with so much of this stuff, it, it's very hard to prove any of this. It's, a, it's you know, what do you think? It's... it's um, I yeah. think there is a sense, both in the archaeology and in the later sources like the sagas, that the people who are not burned are sort of living in their graves. It's a place where where they're living a different kind of life, or maybe living a life but in a different place. Yeah. Um, so there are these fantastic saga accounts of burial mounds opening up at night when people walk past and there's people inside who are singing and drinking and having a good time and so on. Presumably in a very small dark room, but uh, <laughs> it's. Uh, but this idea of some kind of life, I think, is is reasonable. And even in the, the you know the really amazing graves like the Osaban ship, the the most spectacular Viking burial ever found, the uh, the boat is physically moored in the grave. It's it's actually tied down around a big rock like an anchor. So they yeah. they want it to stay there. There's an idea that that whatever it is going on in that boat, it's going to go on in that mound. So that's that's my best guess. Yeah. Well, again, I I very much got that from from your book, the idea of the different identities and the certainly at the start of the Viking Age, how different uh, groups across Scandinavia were doing very different things, um, like the uh, the bit where you talk about the rise of the sea kings is uh, particularly captivating. I'm going to take this moment to say that there's been many times where we've been reading it out and we just stop and look at each other and just say, that's really metal. That's quite metal. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, especially saying about like uh, the details of the, the Icelanders um, in their thing meeting, you know, um, and how they would have been, they would have had the backdrop of the, you know, the lava wall behind them. Mm. And again, it's like, that's pretty metal. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic acoustics. So, <laughs> exactly. I've been there. It certainly is. Um, yeah. 
Sorry, I've uh, I forgot where I was at for that. It it is it is. So Brock, you had a couple of things. <laughs> no, well, if I if I could just say, like, it is a fantastic book because I feel like what um, I th- I think some people tend to sterilize it a bit too much, and then other people um, when people tell retell the Norse myths and stuff, they try too hard to make it cool, and it doesn't end up being cool. Whereas what like like Sean says. The way that you just state things flatly, like it's so metal and it's very, very it's cool. Enough. <laughs> like, it's already cool enough. Yeah. It's cool enough on its own, yeah. really, isn't it? It's... Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've sort of, um, you've really straddled the line. Like, there's, it's so densely packed with awesome information and yet so accessible. Uh, it's just absolutely fantastic. Fantastic, thank you. That's, um, that's really yeah, nice. Thank that's you. Quite right. Yeah. We've re- we've gotten lots of enjoyment out of it so far so um uh, if i could if i could ask a question i i think it sort of ties into what um sean was just saying and what you were just saying about having this this life in the mound in the burial mound afterwards um after death i think there's this um there's this idea going around uh neo-paganism that uh Valhalla would be sort of a, a cosmic um sort of a cosmic consolation prize and that it's a metaphor for like a mass grave on a battlefield and that all these warriors have died together uh and then they're all they're all buried very far from home they don't get to have parties in in their uh, their home mound with their, with their family etc um and that Valhalla is this sort of cosmic constellation prize that, that the warriors get for having made that sacrifice far away uh, and that it's not supposed to be taken as as literal um literally going to odin's hall uh, that's just one idea that the the neo-pagans seem to have these days um and i was just i i get the feeling that you're gonna tell me that you think that the vikings were quite literal about it uh, but i'm interested to see what you think I, th- I guess the first thing is that there are slightly different versions of, of mm. Valhalla. Um, almost that some that it's like a hall in its own right, or others that it's a hall kind of inside a, a larger one in, mm. in some way. Uh, I I quite like the idea that it's a place for people who didn't make it back, not just yeah. alive, but didn't make it back mm. home. Because one of the things that's come out of there's been a lot of studies trying to find bodies with injuries, mm. people interested in violence in the Viking Age, just studying the bones in in graves and so on, and there's really not very many. Okay. I mean, it, it's it's so few. It's kind of like why is this? And I think it's because if you get killed in battle or whatever, they bury you there, or if you lose, you probably just get yeah. left there. And I think there's a lot of people who aren't coming home. And that idea of a place where you know that they are, so they're not in the burial mound behind your farm, like your dad (laughs) or your mum or whatever, but your brother, but you still know where he is. Not his body or his ashes, but you know where he is, really. So I think that idea is maybe there. Something I find interesting is that... um, Valhalla is not the only place where the warrior dead go. They go to Freya mm. as well. And there's one, there's what we know that her and Odin get half each, according to the poems. And there's one of them that says Freya gets first pick, <laughs> which is really interesting. 
So she's probably got the really good warriors. <laughs> but but I, I think it's, it's also hard to know, um, is it only sort of like the really, really sort of super warriors that end up there? Or is it all of them? Or um, do the Valkyries kind of choose, you know, you, you, not you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, and then there's things like uh, when people who drown um, go to run yeah. and under yeah. the sea in a fairly unpleasant place, really. But, I mean, anybody can drown. Yeah. You know, it, you, you, could, you, you can have a warrior who's spent his whole life doing amazing deeds and then his ship sinks. Mm. What... It's kind of unfair. It doesn't. It doesn't sort of tie up with where he would be naturally yeah. going. And then you get people like um, Aeol Skallagrimsson in in Aeol's Saga, who spent his whole life worshiping Odin, and then he goes to to Hill. He doesn't go to Valhall at all, and he doesn't think he's going to either. And that just makes no sense, you know. So, I I I wonder sometimes. But if we're talking about Valhalla, you know, who goes there and why and what does it mean? I wonder whether they even knew, actually. Mm. I know that sounds a bit daft, but if you think of, say, I don't know, a, a devout Christian today, or lots of them, you get devout Christians from all over the world and say, describe heaven in detail. Draw me a yeah. map. And they can't. And that doesn't mean they don't believe in it or they're not, they're not devout or pious, but you don't have to actually have a very clear idea of that stuff to no. believe in it enough. And I think the Vikings may have been like that. Maybe they got in arguments about <laughs> it. I don't know, but... <laughs> I'm sure they did. <laughs> i got to say, I did really enjoy in your book, um, well, you know, how you've, uh, you know, covered so, well, you know, in a lot more detail than I've heard it before, like, say, you, you know, you talking... Uh, detail of uh, Freya's Hall, and there's a lot of parts of that. Say the, um, you know the the ceilings are made of golden shields, and I thought that was actually in Odin's Hall. And the the is it the the stag that has the pure water flowing through it from its um. I think that's from, I think that's Valhall, but I'm not sure. I can't remember to be honest. Oh, maybe I'm mixing it up, but it, there's certainly a differentiation in between aspects of the different halls that I hadn't quite assigned to each other before. Yeah, and um, there's also the other ones that we know nothing about except their names, you know, and maybe, maybe they had loads of stories about them, but nobody wrote them down. Yeah. So what do you think as well about the idea then of all of the drowned men? Because you cover it briefly in your book about all of the drowned men and also participate on the side of... You know Fenrir and the, the, you know, the, the, the bad guys and yeah, know. exactly the bad I, guys. I think that's really strange because it's um, this idea of knowing where your loved one or your relative is, like people in Valhall. If if your if your uncle drowns, you you presumably wouldn't really want to think of him spending eternity getting ready to crew this horrible ship and do bad things at the end of the world, and that kind of um, I wonder if it's connected with fate. This idea that well we didn't know it but that's what his fate was, and and you know none of us know what ours is. Mm. Who knows? And they, I I think that they liked stories so much. I wonder if they saw life as a as a story, and and oh that was how that person's story ended. You know it, it's 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 so contradictory. That's one of the other things I like about it actually that a lot of the stories don't make sense when you put yeah. them together. 
But I, rather than thinking, I mean, some of that is, is the sources, you know, they are a bit of a mess and they're from all different contexts and so on. But I, I, I'm more in favour of them not really having a consistent idea of any of that at the time. Mm. Just good stories. <laughs> yeah. And stories change, you know, when you tell them. When, when we, one of the things I, I wrote in the book is that, um, you know, we can buy books of the Norse myths, but that's after they've been fossilised. Now they won't ever change. Um, except when people revive them by talking about them again. But, uh, but up to the moment that a Christian scholar or a monk finally wrote it down, they were stories and they were changing all the time. And maybe the stories they told about Odin in Western Norway are not at all the same as they told in Southern Sweden or in Iceland. And then mm. there's the fact that most of the material we have, not all, but most of it is, is ultimately Icelandic, which is, is not really a particularly typical Scandinavian environment. It's quite mm. a special one. Matthias is into this with, with volcanoes and things and lots of there's lots of fire in those stories, which is a bit odd if you live in Sweden. You know, there's no volcanoes <laughs> or anything. So, yeah. Well there certainly seemed there was there was lots of uh, dust at the start of your book where you talk about the um the great um dust veil and how yeah. there was all those cataclysms that possibly inspired Ragnar oh sorry, the uh, Fimble Winter. Yeah. I think it really um, I've heard about it before, but I don't think I've really read about it. And uh, it sort of hit me in such a sense of it being so grim. And yeah. and it's also not that long before the Viking Age. Not not mm. really. It's it's about you know it's about two hundred years, a little bit more. Um, it, it's obviously it's not living memory, but in a society that memory remembers things by talking about them, um, that's not too long for family histories to survive um, especially of, of something so very very bad especially if most a, of your family died <laughs> indeed yeah I don't I don't think it's by any means the single explanation I don't think there's any single explanation for why they end up as they do but I think it, it must have been a, a, a really big part of part of the mix because yeah, two, 200 years is nothing in terms of folklore like there's there's still yeah, folk songs that were around in the 1500s. Like Tamlin is from the 1500s, isn't it? And it, people still sing it. Like mm. it's uh, it's no mm. time at all for folklore to survive. So that's crazy. Yeah. Mm. So um, uh, me and Brock, we've we've both been itching to ask you about what you think about trolls and dwarfs. <laughs> yeah, I've heard you mention that you, that you don't think that dwarfs were actually small in the Viking Age, or maybe some of them were. But, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear what you think on it. Um, about dwarfs, the, um, there's one, of, one of the things about all of these creatures, and elves and all the others, is that we've got almost no idea of what they look like. Um, and I think every time people today, when we, when we come to those figures, whatever we think about it, we, we can't get rid of Tolkien. It's, it's always in our heads. Um, we, you know, we, it's impossible to, to get past it in a way and there's not much that really says what they look like or how big they are and the idea of, of trolls as being fairly large there's, there's no kind of suggestion of tiny <laughs> trolls really but, um, and the, the very few kind of I don't really like the term but kind of supernatural creatures that we have pictures of that we can be sure it's them 
are dwarfs, actually, and they're um, depicted in the legend of Sigurd, um, the dragon slayer. And there's a dwarf smith that tries to trick him, and uh, Sigurd kills him. And there's a, there's a, a depiction of this, um, where you can really definitely say that that figure is Regin the smith, who is a dwarf in the story. And he looks exactly the same as everybody else. There is, if you took that figure out of the, the picture of the story, so you wouldn't have it in that context, you wouldn't think it was any different to any other male, human-looking figure. And maybe, maybe he was green. I don't know, because these things are probably painted. Maybe they're blue, I don't know. But uh, there's, there's very little to kind of differentiate these creatures so I, I i think they're i've called them an invisible population i think they're like your neighbors but but you know almost like different professions or people coming from different countries and except these these guys are elves and they're dwarves and I, I don't know but the i think the the trolls are very much something um they're from outside your comfort zone they're they they're they're clearly dangerous and they're kind of they're kind of dim and they're and they're a bit bit uh, bit boisterous you know you wouldn't want to run into them they're things that live out in the wild um there's been some suggestions that they're basically kind of the wilderness or the dangers of the wilderness and you know if you if you go up in the mountains or up in the forests those kind of environments aren't necessarily as hostile to the people who live with them as they would be to to us, if I if I walk off in a forest, I'll you know I'll get lost in five minutes. But but people then probably wouldn't. But but still, you can you can have accidents, and people would have not come back sometimes. And and I I guess things like trolls provide a way of explaining what's happened to them, rather than just breaking their leg and falling down a slope or something. But um, there have been some uh, strange gold figures found in southern Denmark over the past few years um you know these gold foil figures they're little things about the size of a postage stamp usually with couples or sometimes individual figures and they can be gesturing or embracing and yeah. things like that they're kind of like a subset of those but they're sort of they're not in the little frames like the the gold foils they're more like um like sort of paper dolls like you've cut them mm. out you know so they're like freestanding figures and they're clearly not human, unlike all the other ones. And they're kind of lumpy and strange. And some of them have their faces in their chests. Um, and we've kind of never seen those things before. And the, the people working with them in Denmark, are, are they're fairly sure they're trolls, which is, is kind of cool. You know, we might have seen trolls for That's the first time. Cool. I, I, I find it fun that... Um, Trolls are one of the things that, uh, well, they're, they're not only outside Scandinavia as well. They've also lived longest in folklore. I mean, they live a very, very long time. Um, there's lots of folklore about little people of one kind or another, people who live under the ground and so on. But, but trolls are, are really a solid part of that. Intriguing things. Nice. What, what's, your, what, what's your curiosity? Where's that, that from? Yeah. Well, it's just more that uh, me and Brock usually, you know, whilst we're tattooing, we'll usually be discussing certain elements of, um, of folklore and so on. And the current topic seems to be 
uh, trolls, dwarves, and the little people and the other people at the moment. So oh, yeah. it's more of a current thing. Yeah. So Brock, uh, tell them about the seal, Brock. Oh yeah. So I was I was on the beach recently, uh, and I just looked to my left, uh, started people watching, and I started just singing to myself this uh, this Gaelic song. It's called the Lament of the Seal Woman. And when I returned to the <laughs> to looking at the sea, a seal was staring straight at me, and I'm convinced it was a seal woman. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I've 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 made contact with the other folk now, and I, I'm determined to uh, to do it again. So, <laughs> I I really like the way that you um, that you referred to it as like a, a hidden population, uh, and it's sort of very much a part of the natural world. It seems. It seems like, um, well, W.B. Yeats was was sort of describing the Irish fairy folklore in those terms in the eighteen hundreds. It's, mm. it's quite, I find it's quite a nice way of looking at it, and um, and I think it's it's a way to sort of dispel the Tolkienisms as well. So when when you're thinking about mm. it in those terms, like the, the people can think of fairies with the the tiny little wings and and everything, but. When you think of it as this, mm. uh, I think he says, like beyond the chains and chains of this world, there's another world going on, and it's peopled by the same sort of people, but they're just a little bit different to us. And uh, yeah, I, I really like your your mm. description of all that. I think it's very cool. Yeah, cool. Um, I, I I did have a question about um, the dwarves in in terms of um, is it called the dwarf catalog, the list of dwarf names? Yeah, so it's a modern. Okay, name. right. It's it's a part of of Halvar, yeah. the uh, the sayings of the highway, yeah. which seems to be a compendium of lots of different bits and pieces. So that's hmm. that's that's one of the parts. Okay, because I I've heard people talking about um, the dwarves and that sort of suggesting this um, that maybe they were uh, dead folk. Like I think people talk about hmm. the. Um, some of them having names like black or blue, and some of them suggesting mm. uh, dead, dead young children. Uh, uh, sort of, I think somebody said to me once that one of them is called the one who fits on your forearm, uh, and I haven't been able to find that in the source, but it might be a weird translation. But um, just this idea that maybe they they are the dead folk that live in the mound that have been sort of mythologized, and I didn't know if you had a. Any thoughts mm. on that? There could be an idea of a connection with things that are under the ground, because yeah. dwarves are definitely that. Um, there's, there's been some new work on ancestors. Mm. Um, we, we use ancestors in a fairly loose way to mean, you know, dead relatives, really. But ancestors can also be kind of like special dead relatives. Yeah. You know, you can, you can, some people become ancestors with a capital A and some people yeah. don't. So maybe... <laughs> Maybe actually most of those other beings are connected with that, and there's there's all kinds of links with the dead, um, and I I I think also there is that. Although I think people felt that they shared their world with those creatures, clearly dead people did that in a different way. Dead people are not <laughs> not the same as living people. You know they've they've. I, I find it really fascinating that when Odin wants information, he has to ask dead humans because they know more than he does. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's that's really remarkable, actually. Mm. And it's always dead women as well, <laughs> well usually. Um, 
So, so I think this idea of ancestors and different kinds of spirits and maybe some of those other people, those other folk that you mentioned, I think they're all kind of mixed up. Yeah. And that's, that's about as formal as I can yeah, put it. Really. Yeah. I, I think it is a bit vague. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, one other thing that I, I was wondering was I've been, I've been told when I visited the Bulla grave mounds in Norway um that the that in the literature the um the posts that hold up the halls are referred to as dwarves am i getting that wrong yeah, yeah. is it no no that's that's right there's uh, there's a guy in iceland called terry gunnell hmm. who's professor of folklore at the university there and uh, he's written a lot about this and the um the the posts that that's the main sort of supporting posts for the for the big halls they're called dwarves and there's this idea of dwarves supporting things right sort of they they sort of keep things together yeah and uh and in the mythology as well the the um the the, the sky is held up by these dwarves whose names mean north south east and yeah. west um hmm. so there's there's these kind of I don't know, sort of mega dwarfs <laughs> that, that sort of really hold things together. So. Yeah, yeah. But Terry's Terry's your, your man on that. Okay. Yeah. I won't take up any more time with dwarves, Sean. You can uh, <laughs> you can move us away. <laughs> I'm always happy to hear about dwarves. Um, uh, so, me and Brocker were talking about saying how we 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 always love hearing your description of um, of Viking graves. Uh, because as as you've stated quite a few times in your previous works, they you know they are there's um there's a continuity with how different they are, but you know then you can say that there's patterns within those. Um, but just more than anything, I was going to ask if you could just tell us about the most recent Viking grave you've come across that's caught your attention that you think is particularly crazy. Oh. Um... It's not particularly recent, but it hasn't really been published very much. I think the craziest one I've come across is from Iceland. It came up about, I think, about 10 years ago. And it's uh, there's a lot of horse burials in Iceland. Um, not, not that much more than in other places, but they're quite a marked part of, of Icelandic burial rituals. A lot of horses. And there is a burial with two horses where... Each animal has been sliced sort of vertically down the middle, um, not lengthways, but across. So you've got like a horse in two halves, you know, and, wow. uh, and they've done this with both horses and then they swapped the halves. <laughs> no so way, got, it's crazy. You know, front of horse A and back of horse B and the other way around and then put them in the grave. And you think, what? Why? <laughs> I have no yeah. idea what that means. Wow. And then with things like that, these are very crazy things that um, often the burials that go with them are completely normal. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, there's nothing strange. It's just, <laughs> and, and I, I honestly, I have no idea. But, and, but there's things like that are so specific. It's not like someone saying, "What should we do?" Yeah, let's go. Uh, that they must mean something, <laughs> and that's that's why I when you you know I think this is. It, uh, that's why I think these funerals are stories or, or plays or narratives or something like that. They have a a story in them. Or maybe those particular ways you treat animals or where you put the body and the objects and so on. They're referring to, do you remember when he did that? 
yeah, let's put this there. Or, I, I, you know, I, I think I think they link up to something bigger, um, some kind of story about the the dead person, or maybe their family, or that place, or who all those people doing the burying believe themselves to be. I don't know, but where that fits in with swapping bits of a horse, though, I have no idea. Well, there was also. Um... The one where you were talking, well, I know you've mentioned it as well, and the Isle of Man, where there was the woman buried in a mound on top of a of a male mm. that was uh, buried, and she had part of her skull missing. Yeah, it's that's a it's a very strange burial. It's a um, it's a, a youngish man with lots of weapons and things buried in a, I think in a coffin. Um, and then with uh, a quite a complicated mound built on top. And the mound itself is quite interesting because it's built of lots of turves that come from different places. So people must have been bringing turf to the funeral. So you wonder whether it's his retainers and their fields or I'm giving him a piece of my field or it's got something to do with literally you bring somebody the land or I don't know. But so, you, so you've got that sort of dimension of what's going on around. And then when they, they make the mound that is basically finished, really, then this unfortunate woman is killed. And she's in a very strange position. Her hands are sort of up above her head. And it seems that rigor mortis has set in. So there's some people think that she was killed somewhere else and then put on the mound or, or maybe left like that for a long time it's, it's hard to tell it's all very disgusting but the the <laughs> um the thing is she's got this big sort of slice out of her head um and it's it's a you know it's a big part of the skull that is missing and it's just not there so either they did this somewhere else or somebody ugh, took it away you know um and then there are finals like, totally unrelated but from say denmark and reba there's a a find of, of, of part of a human skull that's been pierced as an amulet. Um, and it has an inscription that mentions Odin. And so people are wearing things like this. So you do wonder whether they took it away or something. And then her body in the Isle of Man, her body is covered up by a rather thick layer of cremated animals. And bear in mind, none of the people, not her or the man underneath, neither of them are cremated, but they've burned a lot of animals. And then covered up her body with the ashes and then finished the mound by putting another layer of earth on on top so you've mentioned <laughs> so how uh, um how uh in Eden Fadlan's accounts how the lady that's sort of orchestrating the whole thing um I think you say that she I think well at least I've, I think I've read that she has two daughters with her or something as well mm. that um that she's possibly considered to be a valkyrie that that is yeah that's that's one idea it's it has to be said it's just pure conjecture but um it's the only real eyewitness description of some kind of i mean the the language fails us really some sort of funeral director or undertaker or something but someone whose job it is to do that clearly and the thing that we need to remember with Ibn Fadlan is that everything he's telling us, he's got through, he's either just describing what he sees, then they did this and then they did that. And, you know, or when he, when he says what it means, it's because somebody's told him through an interpreter. And he gives her a title, um, the angel of death. 
which is not a figure that we have in Norse mythology, really. It's very hard to think who that would be. Which doesn't mean to say it's not a Norse concept, because, you know, not everything ends up in the, the written sources. But in Arabic, and as I said, I'm not an Arabist, so this is really very much at second hand, but in Arabic, um, he uses the phrase the Malak al-Malt, which is one of the um, the angels whose job it is to choose where the dead go. And if somebody is trying to translate Valkyrie into Arabic, it kind of sounds like what they might say. Or if someone describes what this person does and he thinks, hmm, yeah, sounds like that. Mm-hmm. But that's where that comes from. The other thing, that the idea that there might be kind of, I know it sounds crazy, but kind of human Valkyries, um, and not just in Scandinavian context either, it is a word in Old English, Valkyria, um, literally meaning the same, chooser of the slain. And there is this uh, rather wild sermon from the 11th century by Archbishop Wolfstan. Um, this sounds like it has no connection to Ibn Valam, but just, just bear with me. <laughs> and it, uh, basically, this, this bishop is, is ranting at the English people, and they've been very bad, and they're, and they're you know, all the troubles that are visited upon you. Always. It's your fault, because you've been bad. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, not me. It's you. And, he, and this, this sermon was distributed to be read out of every pulpit in the country. And one of the things in, in it is a list of kind of bad people that you shouldn't have anything to do with because it's your fault. Um, and there's lists of kind of real people like thieves and, and robbers and, um, and so on. And then in that list is um, one of it is, is Wiccan, which is usually translated as witches or wizards. That's where it's where, you know, Wicca, the, the, the pagan word comes from. Um, and... Valkyrian, and and they're clearly not supernatural things. They're a list of people you shouldn't have anything to do with. Mm. So it implies that there are presumably women called that. And you have to wonder, where does that come from? And it's just like a little drop in 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 an ocean (laughs) of of (laughs) cluelessness for us, really. But and, and bear in mind, that's the 11th century. But it's also strange that this is several hundred years after England is supposedly Christian and, and they're still concerned about people talking to these guys. So it, there's clearly this undercurrent of, of something else that's still there. And they're kind of worried that, that people will go back to it when they're afraid or, or in trouble, you know. So this idea of there being human Valkyries, it's it's... It is strange, and it's hard to really think what they do. Um, maybe it's got something to do with people who's helped clear up after a battlefield, after a battle or something. I've got no idea. But the idea of these professional ritual specialists or funeral directors or whatever, and female um, funeral directors, I, I think is very clear. So that's that's where that Valkyrie thing comes from. Well, I was wondering if there's, a, if there's the possibility that the... You know, at least one of the the two ladies in the Usabeg burial were possibly this kind of individual. There's been a lot of discussion of who they are, and, and you know, you know, is, is one of them a queen and her servant, or or are they of equal status, or is one a slave, or all kinds of things. Um, Anstina Ingestad was was very convinced that uh, one of them was some, some kind of priestess of Freya. 
Um, and there's a lot of things in that burial that are kind of connected with this whole sort of complex of magic and sorcery that, that I've worked on years ago. Um, the idea of someone being a, one of them being a, a, a sort of, well, a ritual specialist, whether we call her a Valkyrie or an angel of death or something like that. Yeah, possibly, because that, they must have died too. What, what kind of funeral did they get? There is the, the tapestries in the Elsebear burial, which is our, one of our best contemporary sort of picture sources alongside the picture stones of Gotland. And there are women who are shown holding some of the things that we find in the Elsebear grave, and they're clearly in a big procession. There's been a new publication with new pictures of those, much clearer than the ones we had before. And uh, I wonder whether we can identify the Elsebear women in those pictures, maybe repeated like a comic strip or something like that. Um, and the idea that they have some kind of ritual function, I think, is is pretty good. Mm. But what it is, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to really put my money on. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's definitely some sort of overlap uh, with uh, the whole thing of women of high status and ceremonies. Um, me and Brock were talking about this before, um, in in reference to your book about, I mean, the whole thing of. Because again, I don't want to use any any specific terms, but important women with iron staffs. Hmm. Yeah, I I I think so. And there, there is, I mean, you know, I'm I'm kind of into these um, these staffs as sort of staffs of sorcery, maybe. But there's lots of other possibilities. I I think the idea of importance that they, they clearly are important. They they're not your average people, and they don't have your average stuff. So I, 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 I quite like vagueness in these things. I think calling them women of power will yeah. do, actually. Mm. And, and also, I'm not sure that people of the time would particularly make any distinction between spiritual power, political power, personal power. I think being a powerful person probably meant all of those things. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, that's um, one of the things that I think a lot of people... Want, you know, when they get into all of this stuff, they find very frustrating that there doesn't seem to be very clear um, priests or priestesses of such um, mm. compared to what what's present in Christianity and other religions and so on. Mm. But um, yeah, you, I know that you cover a lot of that in your book, so I'd just say for anyone that's interested in that, that that's what they should go read. But um, sorry, yeah, uh, I'm getting a little distracted. Uh, Brock, is there anything you want to ask now? Um, well, so in the book, uh, I, I found it absolutely fascinating, the your treatment of um, gender and uh, identity, uh, etc. Uh, I, I think uh, you, the way you spoke about it was, was really quite... Um, I don't know. It was quite nuanced compared to what I what I sort of expect from perhaps the wider Viking world as a fad, uh, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, and one of my one of my followers actually asked me um, to ask you a question that sort of feeds into that. That um, I think they asked whether Umir sort of everything everything living sort of coming from Umir 
whether that was significant in that sense that of perhaps uh Umer having aspects of uh hermaphrodite uh or whether mm. whether that's just one of those interesting gaps in the literature <laughs> i i think it's I think it is a gap and a contradiction in the mm. literature, but at the same time, that whole circumstances of creation at the beginning, where it just mm. makes no sense at all. Yeah. You know, you've got this cosmic cow wandering about <laughs> in there as well, and um, and then suddenly there are there are whole beings, and you think, well, who are they? Where did they come from? <laughs> and then and then someone has a brother, and you think, well, from where? You know? Or or and they they don't have parents, or some of them you know, is one that. Um, I think it's formed from the sweat under one of them's arms and all kinds yeah, of yeah. stuff. So uh, there are themes like that in quite a lot of religions. Gre- Greek religion yeah. is, is a bit like that too. So I think there are these very confused ideas about the um, the beginning of things. You know, people have always mm. told stories about that in all cultures. Personally, I wouldn't want to go too far in putting a very specific sexual or, or gender construction on it. Not yeah. not out of resistance to any idea like that, but just because we don't know. Um, mm. Yeah. But I I certainly think there's something about giants and gods that they're linked so often in the stories. They're clearly different kinds of beings, and it's not about it's not about whether they're male or female. Or they're different kinds of forces. Yeah. And the mixing of them and meeting them, that is quite important. And I think that may have overtones of gender constructions, but but mm. more than that is, is really difficult to say. And it, it's also speculative as well. Uh, okay, that's really cool. I, th- I think that sort of feeds into as well what you were talking about with the um, the magic, the Caesar, is it? And, and mm-hmm. sort of not not wanting to apply modern gender constructions onto what they did back then because it's such a, a different sort of entirely different world i i find that utterly fascinating yeah yeah it's yeah. and also we we are so unsure of their terms for things as well yeah so it's, yeah it's yeah absolutely it was very interesting how I think you as well how you sort of sorry brock continue sorry no no i uh, know i was just i was just going to say about the whole umid having <laughs> having that contradiction in his in his being and like just just don't question the plot holes it's like when <laughs> in when indiana jones hangs off the side of the submarine and it goes underwater don't worry about it it's fine <laughs> it's still a good story <laughs> yeah i i think there is that as well and you can imagine you know small viking sort of girls and boys and um, <laughs> but how does he? You know, it's like, yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Indiana Jones on the submarine. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> when um you mentioned and like so it in in your book you sort of you made a point of breaking down our modern um perceptions of some of these things and then sort of rebuilding it. I thought that was fascinating. Um, and obviously the contradictions about. Odin, for a start, about he practices magic that seems to only have been acceptably reserved for women, and then how men have Edgy, 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 yeah. So you 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 mentioned in it about the whole thing about having like rolling the staff between the the legs and the knees, and it's sort of having. I I would just lo- I would love to hear some more about that. 
Um, when I, I first wrote about this uh, about 20 years ago, and one of the things that was one of the biggest puzzles was what those staffs are, because there's really no descriptions of what you do with them. They have these staffs and they, they're clearly important. And the word for some of these women is, is vulva, which means staff bearer. And there are descriptions in the sagas, and of course these are late, but um, of you know, one or two women being buried with these things. And then we find something like that in the graves, and that's these staffs that I think are staffs of sorcery, but there are other interpretations as well. But even with the sorcery idea, it was kind of what do you actually do with these staffs? Do you just wave them or point them or whatever? They're, they're quite a specific shape. They have this thing like a basket at one end like a sort of expanded cage of iron um, on the end of a, a staff. And it was a few years after I wrote my book on this, because I didn't come to any conclusion, that a Norwegian guy called uh, Eldar Heider, um, he suggested that they were distaffs, these things used for spinning, where you, you gather um, the, the woolen threads round the, the head of the distaff while you're, you're spinning the wool. And he found a lot of later examples from the Middle Ages and afterwards in wood, because of distaff is, is usually made of wood, and they look exactly like these um, these iron ones. And I, I think he's right. And the thing that really makes me, that really sells me on this, is that part of this Seder ritual is sending out your spirit or your soul or whatever it is, um, sort of in, in a trance to go and do whatever it is you want to do, contact the spirits or, or, you know, go into another world. But the real trick is you've got to get it back because that's, that's kind of bad news if your soul just, you know, goes off. And there's, a, there's one of Odin's spells is actually to prevent that, to make, to make these witches unable to get their souls back. And what Eldar was, was finding is that th there is this idea that it's connected to you by a thread and his idea is that the whole reason why these staffs look like distaffs is that you wind your soul back in, just like the threads on a distaff. So these are kind of magic distaffs to get your soul back. And the way you use them is there's several ways you can use them while walking as well. But, but one of the ways you use them is to, to hold them between your legs if you're sitting down and then you can sort of twist them as you, as you work. And then there's, um, in sorry, this is a very long answer, but in, in medieval witchcraft descriptions, um, you know, you've, you've heard of witches flying on broomsticks. In, in the early illustrations and descriptions, they also fly on distaffs. Ah. And um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it really, kind of negative Christian views of female sexuality mixed up in witch persecution and so on and one of these things because the you know the witches in, in the middle ages are supposed to have sex with the devil and all this kind of stuff um but this this idea of the distaffs is regarded as a sort of some kind of sexual symbol i mean you can imagine really um and and there is this idea there's something about the savor rituals that has these feminine connotations and maybe if there is a, a sort of symbolic idea around these staffs and some of the words for them actually mean peace <laughs> so there's a kind of rather di rather direct um link there so i i think that's um that's where this uh this this sort of 
association of sexuality and magic might come in. That's fascinating. Well, I know we've been taking up a lot of your time, and I'm sure you've got like a lot of stuff you want to do. So um, I was just going to ask you very brief- briefly again, uh, if you could just describe a little bit more of that hall at uh, Uppsala that has, that's possibly, well, there seems to be an embodiment of the idea of Valhall. I've, I've heard you mention it before, yeah, so I was wondering yeah. if you could just describe it again to us. Yeah, it's um, it's actually excavated by a guy called Jon Lundqvist, who's who's got the office behind Next oh, nice. Here. And we're part of the same project. And uh, it's this um, enormous feasting hall. Um, it's one of the biggest in, in Scandinavia. And uh, it burned down. And it looks like um, instead of just it, it burning down, everybody walks away. They very carefully tidied it up and sort of buried key bits of the building in the burned out post holes and things. So you've got this kind of sort of fossilised ruin of the hall if you like and there's two elements about it that i think are really amazing one is these big iron spirals they're they're like a sort of like a very elaborate kind of bill hook or something like a sort of just a spiral shape and the smallest ones are about the, the size of your finger and the biggest ones are like the length of a forearm so they're, they're very different sizes and there's dozens of these things, and they appear to have been hammered into the posts all over the hall. So you've got this this timber building with these kind of spiky spirals sticking out of the walls and out of the posts. And the, the closest parallels that we have to them are in um, a couple of the ship burials and also on depictions of... This is hard to explain, but there is um, in one of the boat burials there is uh, the remains of a figurehead, you know, the, like the dragons on the front of the on, the on the bow of the ship, and one of these dragon heads, if that's what it is, it has a kind of mane that goes uh, over the top of its head and down its neck, and the mane is made of spirals oh, wow. that look like these things, and we find this sort of spiral symbol in connection with these dragons or whatever they are quite a lot. And part of this idea of, of this hall, which is um, almost certainly the seat of the Uppsala kings, is that it is a kind of mythological world in miniature. And if you've got these spirals, that, like the, the, the back of a dragon or a serpent, all over the hall, and bear in mind that these halls are almost certainly carved, like the Norwegian state churches and things like that are, I wonder whether this is purely an idea. I really must emphasize that because we've got no. It's just I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> um, I I wonder whether because we've got to say what are these spirals? What is it? Is it just you know I want a spiky hall or is it does it mean something? And if the only parallels we have are these these manes of the dragons, I wonder whether the whole hall is bounded by some kind of carved serpent, like the Midgard serpent which would mean that within the hall is the world. Wow. It, that, that it binds it. But you mentioned the spears, and there's, there's lots of these features on the thing. And the, um, the hall has several doors, which is quite common that there's multiple entrances. But unusually, it has one really big set of double doors. I think they're, they're over three metres wide. Um, and 
the the hinges the pivots everything are preserved it's really really well preserved and the hinges of the doors are actually spears that have been bent round to to sort of fit round the the door posts so that when you looked at the doors um the the spears would be sort of flat against the the wood so you're entering through a gate of weapons um and some of the there's also other spirals that have been fitted flat they don't sort of stick out so so if you've ever seen medieval church doors with wrought iron patterns and things on them maybe something like that and this idea of a hall that's partly made of weapons it sounds like those mythological halls you know with the rafters made of spears or shields as a roof and so on and it's not exact, but I think this idea of this hall as a mythological space, when, when you go and see the king or the king's residence, you're not in the rest of the world, you're in a special place. Maybe you go into this kind of a place that isn't quite entirely of the world, yeah. because the kings aren't either, because they're descended from the gods and all of this kind of thing. So I think they're, they're really reinforcing that differentness. And these halls are on a, um, they're on very high terraces, so they stick up above the surrounding plain. And the, the name of Sala, it actually means the, the, the high halls. So they're, they're things you could see these buildings from, from a very big distance. Even now, you stand up on the terrace, you've got these amazing views out over the plain. Oh, I look forward to going one day. It's this big spiky hall. Yeah, yeah, it'll yeah, be welcome. <laughs> very cool. Amazing. <laughs> All right, well, I think we'll. We'll leave her at that then. Um, okay. I want to say thank you so much for your time. Yeah, and, it's amazing. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Would and you like to, to just tell us there? a small amount? Sorry, I was going to say, would you like to just tell us a small amount about the book, when it's going to be released, etc.? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, it's called uh, Children of Ash and Elm, A History of the Vikings. Um, it's published in Britain by Penguin and in the States by uh, Basic Books. And it's coming out on the 25th of August. Excellent. So uh, that's about a week from today. Am, mm-hmm. I, so, uh, am I correct that it's also going to be in um, on Audible as well? Yes, it is. I know, I know it is. It's already been recorded. Um, Excellent. Which I, I didn't know until I saw it for sale. So, ooh, it's on Audible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can get it as an ebook as well. So. Fantastic. Amazing. It's been great talking to you. So. You too. Yeah, thank you, you too. so much. Yeah, thank you very much for coming.